Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, this is such a great episode. This is such a great episode. Yeah. Like, no shade on our other episodes, but this no. is like the tomato of our garden. So Eric Michael Garcia uh, has been a friend of this show for a while and then was on You're Wrong About. Mm-hmm. And we were talking and he was like, it would be cool to cover Rain Man. And I know that Eric writes about uh, autism. Eric himself is autistic. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it on Twitter, not realizing the baggage Mm. that Rain Man has as a movie in an institution. And so when I first started to see that, I was like, I wonder what this episode is going to be like. Yeah. And it was great. (laughs) What were you feeling like it might be that was like very different from what we ended up with? I don't know what my feelings were, but you know, the second a community that has been treated not well Mm -hmm. is like, oh, you're going to do that? I'm like, oh shit! I most <laughs> certainly am not the person to mm-hmm. to uh, orchestrate this conversation. You're like, do I want to walk out on this plank to get a better look at these dolphins? But but I think like what I love about this show is is as you were saying, the thing that you love about this show is that it's like we bring people on and they talk about something that they're very passionate about, mm-hmm. and this gave an awesome opportunity for Eric to talk about all of the things he's passionate about and how discourse has changed and how notions have changed and what people thought about autism beforehand and what where there are deficiencies now. We got to talk about Oliver Sacks. Mm-hmm. Like, it was so fun. It was so fun. And I, I especially love how about the last seven minutes of this podcast are just a love letter to Oliver Sacks. And, like, (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard you sound more purely excited about anything than about the fact that there's an Oliver Sacks documentary out that you haven't seen yet. (laughs) (laughs) And Eric's checked in a couple times, and I'm actually going to watch it tonight. That's my plan, so I'm really really excited to do so. This was super great. Hey, I I wanted to tell you this story that I just remembered Mm. out of nowhere yesterday. And I remembered it because I had a Tootsie Pop. Mm. So I was having a Tootsie Pop and I remembered that between the ages, and I remembered because I would get a blow pop, which is different than a Tootsie Pop, obviously, but I get a blow pop as a reward at the end of my barber visits from the ages of five to 12 years old. And here's the significance of this. My family moved to Maine when I was five from Massachusetts, from, from Everett, which is a suburb of Boston. And... My dad was so, you know, I, I thought it was weird how off-put he was by the barber culture in Maine. Because <laughs> there was no barber culture. There were old men with hair clippers. Mm-hmm. And most people before the 2000s didn't go to barber school. And so they didn't do things in a very mm. particular barber way. And again, my dad was born in 1931. Like he had particular ideas about things. And as we said in another recording recently, like he had like associations with organized crime and stuff. He was like a particular sort of guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we would drive to go see Remo, the barber Remo at Remo's. He'd wear like all like powder blue, like and white polyester leisure suits, like that sort of thing. Big drapey shirts. Like he was like a character out of good, like straight up out of Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Spoke virtually nothing. And I realized in retrospect, it's because he didn't speak any English. Like he was just straight up mm-hmm. Italian. Like, and he cut my hair all the time. And there are so many things I remembered about it. It's like I'd read like comics there and I'd get a blow pop at the end. And like, you know, it, it was a very specific situation. We would drive. Mm-hmm. 180 miles round trip 
to go to a barber in Massachusetts because uh, that was the right way to do it. And then we'd stop and we'd get a, an Italian. He only liked Massachusetts Italians. Maine Italians were disgusting as far as he was concerned. And this just struck me, Sarah. I thought this entire time, and there's some truth to this, like my dad was showing me his culture mm. and it was never overt. Yeah. He hid it in this cloud of Maine is terrible. They don't know what they're doing. These people in Massachusetts know what they're doing. This is how you do it. Like an Italian guy, cause you're here, whatever. Like <laughs> this was his way of spending time with me. Yeah. And it's like, what, an hour and a half each way? Yeah. Like, so like four hours total. Yeah. No, I love that. Exactly. So once every six weeks, we would spend time with each other under the guise he hated Maine so much <laughs> that he needed to go to Massachusetts to get stuff done right. We'd go see Remo. We'd eat an Italian. And he'd explain that the meats were so important and the bread had to be Pianodossi's bread, like all the important things. Mm -hmm. And I realized he was, again, like he was just teaching me how to be a tiny man. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I love picturing you, like, getting your hair cut, reading your comics, like a little wise guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so two things. He'd cut your hair with a straight razor, which was which was huge, because, again, that wasn't happening in Maine. And that sounds really interesting. I would like to feel that. It felt great. And the, just the warm, hot shaving cream on your neck. And then he'd have, he had one of those, like, or two of the hand massagers that have their that are mm -hmm. like connected the straps on your hands are like springs and then the thing just rumbles in your hand and he massages your back when you're done with the massage with the, the haircut wow even though Remo was a tiny man I was even smaller and a little bonier and he just like jerk your body around <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd get a lollipop at the end it was so nice it's amazing my dad cut my hair, which was his way of trying to do that, and also meant that he was insisting on doing something that he honestly wasn't that good at. Um, <laughs> and then you had to live with the consequences. Oh, my God. So I had bowl cuts for years. He was doing you a solid. He was helping you out. He was saving you a couple bucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a child, your wages are hard-earned, and you don't want to squander them on not looking like Pete Rose. Oh, my God. What are some things people should watch out for in this episode? You already talked about the Oliver Zacks thing, but anything else strike you? Yeah. The th interesting thing about this episode to me is that Eric definitely hates Rain Man, but this is a very joyful episode, and it is about, like, using Rain Man as a way to talk about his... What I think I can describe accurately is his deep love of an advocacy for autistic people. Mm. Like, I feel like one of his arguments is, like... It's not enough to be like, autistic people are good workers. What do you know? It's like, no, like you have to love people. And if you love someone, then you think differently about meeting their needs. I'm excited um, about his book, which is going to be out later this year. And it's called We're Not Broken. Yeah. This was one of those episodes where, I mean, our conversations are always so lively, but this was one where I was just mm -hmm. like, I'm here to learn some shit. And I learned <laughs> some shit. It was great. Just like with Remo. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple quick notes before we begin. The first is that Wired Dads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work throughout these here United States. If you need video produced for your project, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. Wired Dads is also made possible with support by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash wiredads. There's all sorts of bonus material that happens over there, all kinds of bonus conversations. We just talked about the Snyder Cut. Uh, we have our conversation about Room 2 
37 coming up. I don't know what's following that, but something I'm sure. Bonus content just about every week. Uh, so you can check us out there. You can support the show financially if you're able to do so. You can get some bonus uh, episodes. And if you're not able to do that, we're just happy that you're here. Thank you so much for being a part of the Wired Ads community. And then one other piece, we've been putting together the Spotify playlist for each of the episodes. You can find it in the show notes. You can find it when we share it on social media. And they're just songs that Sarah and guests and I put together uh, that are inspired by the conversation we had. So please check that out. We have one up this week inspired by this very chat that you're about to listen to. All right, let's, uh, let's go talk to Eric. First base, who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis, who? What are you asking me for? What is this? Why is he doing that? Who is on first? Whenever he gets nervous, he does who's on first. You know, from Abbott and Costello? Yeah, why? I can jump out. Why? I'm an excellent driver. Yeah, that's good. Come on, come on. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, because there's an airplane out there. Yeah, that's right, and everybody's boarding. Let's go. They're like, that was very dangerous. But don't be silly. It's the safest travel in the world. You're going to love this. Trust me. Yeah. Now, come on. Oh, no. You know what I think? You know what I think, Ray? I think this autism is a bunch of shit. Because you can't tell me that you're not in there somewhere. Raymond's unable to make those kind of decisions. You're wrong. Charlie, you know he can't decide for himself. He's capable of a lot more than you know. But two separate things. Yeah, stay with your brother or go back to Walbrook. It's okay. not one thing, Ray. Stay back okay. to Walbrook. Okay. This is your brother. Do you make a choice? Yeah, go back, back to Walbrook. Stay with Charlie Babb. Okay. Back to Walbrook. Stay with my brother. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We have a very special guest today. A very special guest. Who are you? Uh, my name is Eric Garcia. I am a writer based in Washington, D.C., uh, and I have a book coming out called We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Fantastic. When we talked about what you could, what we should all cover, you suggested Rain Man. Yeah. Can you tell us why? I think the reason why I suggested it is because Rain Man, A, there is no movie that has kind of shaped the public discourse about autism in a long time. This is music erasure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, she basically said that it was Rain Man, but for girls. Yikes. Because that was what everyone needed. Yeah, because it shows that she doesn't listen to autistic people. But on top of that, I think it goes to the question about almost for autistic people, who's your daddy? Hmm. Throughout the movie, there's almost the question of who is the better dad for Dustin Hoffman's character, Raymond Babbitt. Is it mm. his dad or is it the state and, you know, Walbrook, the institution where he has to go to, or is it his brother? And you see different permutations of dads and what it means to be a dad of an autistic person in ways that I think we still talk about autism now. And I should say we are recording this on World Autism Day. The movie gods have smiled upon us on this day. Ah, uh, thank you, movie gods. 
Sarah, can you tell the listener who maybe has not seen Rain Man or like me, yeah. hadn't seen it in 20 years and it was a brand new journey, uh, what happens in this movie? Yes. Okay. Rain Man is about two short kings on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like Thelma and Louise. <laughs> in this movie, which came out in 1988 and is the top grossing movie released in the year of my birth, which I want you to remember this entire time, <laughs> because it's a weird movie. In Rain Man, Tom Cruise is a hustling young up-and-coming Lamborghini dealer who is struggling to... Not crookedly, but like the next thing, the next house over from crooked unloads some Lamborghinis that he's dealing when he is called home for his father's funeral. So he goes home to Cincinnati with his hot Italian girlfriend, Susanna, and finds out that his father has left him his classic American automobile and his roses, his distant father, and no money. And also he finds out through some snooping that the sole beneficiary of his father's, the rest of his father's estate is his secret brother. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Raymond. And that Raymond is in an assisted living facility and that he has what they call in this movie high-functioning autism. And basically, these two short kings end up on the road when Tom Cruise kidnaps his brother. And there's actually a part that I love where his girlfriend, who's there to emote and be Italian, and be like, Charlie, you have the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and is there for him to have someone to talk to before Raymond comes along. The script is, like, pretty simple. She confronts him, and she's like, why? Like, did you steal Raymond because you're mad at your father? And he's like, yeah. yeah. He's taken his brother for profit and spite. Yeah. And that is the premise of the film, that once again, top grossing movie domestically in 1988. It's baffling. Eric, when I said something about watching Rain Man on Twitter, there were already people who had feelings about it. And I'm glad that you're joining us to talk about it. What were the feelings about this movie when it came out within communities who were in proximity to autism and within the autistic community? And then, like, what are the feelings about it now? So I think it's important, and Steve Silberman's book, Neurotribes, goes into it a lot. And I want to actually kind of give some, is it okay if I give some context about what was going on in the autism world at the time? Please, and, of please course. do, yeah. Okay, the thing about it is that Rain Man came out in 1988, the year of Sarah's birth, when there was a really seismic shift happening. Up until the 1980s, autism and the DSM, that's, I believe, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, uh, the, basically the manual that is used to diagnose mental disorders, autism was under the umbrella of schizophrenia. Hmm. It was seen as a symptom of schizophrenia. And in a lot of magazine articles and newspaper articles or academic articles, autism was sometimes called childhood schizophrenia. It isn't until 1980 that autism gets its own diagnoses. And then in a, a separate diagnosis, separate from schizophrenia. Then throughout the 1980s, there are things like PDD-NOS, which is pervasive developmental 
disorder not otherwise specified. And then at the same time in the 1980s, a woman by the name of Lorna Wing discovers, and I talk about this in You're Wrong About with Sarah in our, in our You're Wrong About episode about the autism epidemic, uh, or the quote-unquote autism epidemic. Lorna Wing discovers the documents of a guy by the name of Hans Osberger, uh, who was a child psychiatrist or clinician practicing in Nazi-occupied Vienna. She finds his documents, and her husband, John, was, spoke German, so they translated it, and that's how we got the term Asperger syndrome, which doesn't enter the DSM until 1994, so six years after Rain Man. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1970s, what's also happening is you're starting to see the beginning of deinstitutionalization, and autistic people getting out of institutions. This is also, I think it'll be one of the few times I could say, you know, a good thing about the Reagan years, which is that you started seeing Medicaid home and community-based services mm. where autistic people were, and disabled people as a whole, were moving back into communities. So all of this is happening when Rayman is going on. And so to your other question about what was going on at the time. At the time, it was seen as revolutionary. It was seen as, because nobody had really seen autism portrayed fully or an autistic adult portrayed fully. And it obviously got, gained a lot of awards. And I think it cemented it in the zeitgeist. Nowadays, I think a lot of autistic people cringe at it because they see it as not realistic. They see it as largely from the frame of mind of the parent or the caretaker. And mm. Dustin Hoffman's char character doesn't have much agency in the movie. In fact, one of the things I noticed about it is that the only time you see things from Dustin Hoffman's perspective in the movie is when he's taking photos throughout the, the film and then you see the photos in the mm. credits. But then the other time is when he has a meltdown at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. When he's trying mm. to uh, make waffles. And I think that's really important because it shows mm. that he's incapable of making decisions for himself. And that's really important. There's also kind of a secret history behind the ending of Rain Man that people don't know. Mm. So in real life... There were two people who Rain, Raymond Babbitt was based off of. There were some other people, too. But one of them was by the name of uh, Joe Sullivan, and the other one was by the name of Peter Guthrie. And what's interesting is in real life, they never were institutionalized. Hmm. The reason they were able to develop those special skills mm -hmm. likely was because they lived with parents and siblings who loved them. Mm. So mm -hmm. incidentally, Barry Morrow, who was the writer of Rain Man, the ending was supposed to have Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise living as bachelors in New York, in uh, Los Angeles. <laughs> and personally, I would have loved that. Totally. Yeah. I would love to see an offbeat sequel to Rain Man? They could spin it off into a sitcom. They were crazy for doing that at the time. They did a sitcom of Working Girl. <laughs> Rain Man, on tonight after Working Girl. Yeah, exactly. Like, they could have easily done a, a, a show about an offbeat, neurotypical brother and his offbeat, neurotypical brother. Uh, I mean, autistic brother. I would have loved uh -huh. to have seen that. But then what happened is... Daryl Trefford, who was a really one of the most respected psychiatrists or, or, or researchers on autism, I should say, he basically mm -hmm. said this isn't realistic. Bernard Rimland, who 
incidentally had an autistic son and who didn't institutionalize his autistic son said this is, you know, advised against it. Mm. So basically what happened is they changed the ending and Barry Morrow felt a lot of remorse about it later. He felt that he kind of compromised. Mm. So I've been to the facility in West Virginia at Marshall University that Ruth Christ Sullivan, the mother of mm. Joe Sullivan, helped start. It's a really respected facility for helping autistic students transfer or into adult life at university. And I met a lot of the students there who are actually thriving and living on campus and living on dorms. Oh, uh. So there's this irony mm. that the fiction was actually divorced from what really happened because the clinicians thought it was too unrealistic. Mm. As far as Dustin Hoffman's portrayal goes, uh, what, what are the takes on the portrayal? I can only speak for myself and I can only speak for the autistic people I've, I've interviewed. I think a lot of people don't like the idea that he doesn't, that he can't show any emotion and they don't, look at anything from his perspective. Mm. It's always from Tom Cruise's perspective. And we never see how he feels mm. Mm. as a person, as an autistic person. We always just see him as from the perspective of his brother. That's my problem is I want to know how did he feel going on the road with, with Charlie Babbitt? And how did he feel mm -hmm. learning how to count cards and all this? Like, like, I think that's the other thing. And I think the other thing is this whole idea that he can't build a relationship. There's, there's a whole, at the mediation meeting, there's this feeling that he doesn't know the difference between Walbrook and being with his brother. Mm -hmm. And that's seen as the deciding thing also. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yes. Sir, you'd said in our texting back and forth that kind of the portrayal... You know, Justin Hoffman's character is the one who's portrayed as being unfeeling, but mm -hmm. it's obviously Tom Cruise <laughs> the entire movie. Yes, yes, that's actually one of the <laughs> that's actually one of the my favorite things about it is that Dustin Hoffman's character actually does care about his his brother in a in a way, and you kind of see that sometimes. I mean, the fact that he basically saved his brother when he was a baby. Mm. When it's his brother, when it's Tom Cruise, he's kind of an unfeeling prick. Yeah. Tom Cruise is the worst in this movie. He's terrible. Yes, he really is. He's terrible. <laughs> I first started feeling really concerned about Charlie Babbitt when he discovers Raymond. They, you know, he takes Susanna to the facility where he lives and they see his room. And Charlie's like, well, Time to come into your room and touch yeah. all of your belongings. Touch, 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 touch. <laughs> and it's like, do you do this normally? Are you doing this because it's upsetting him? What is happening here? Or does he feel he can do this because he's autistic and, it, and his stuff doesn't matter? Right. If someone came to my house and started touching all of my books and rearranging my things, I would be like, yeah. excuse me, this is unacceptable. This is the last time I'm using an app. <laughs> what I really enjoy about the unlikability of his character is it's consistent because yes. for the first half of the movie, you're like, oh, like his dad sucked probably a little bit and he has a lot of resentment about that and that makes total sense. And then we find out that his dad <laughs> actually made a bunch of gestures to try to reconcile with him that he just blew off. Yeah. Which makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, some people just aren't, and I understand, like, people, some people are just, like, not ready to yeah. come to the table when that happens for a lot of good reasons. That makes sense. But then he's just like, yeah, I'm a prick. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah, he basically admits, yeah, I was I was kind of a jerk. Yeah, like, yes. I wouldn't want to leave my son anything. If, he, he says, like, at one point, if my son had pissed off, then I, I wouldn't want to leave him anything, too. Like, he admits and he realizes he's a jerk. Right. Like, and that's actually one of the things about Raymond Babbitt is he kind of... It's one of the things I like about the movie, but it's also one of the things I hate about the movie is that, A, Raymond Babbitt has no other purpose than to be a mirror and a reflection for Charlie Babbitt. Mm. Mm. But the other thing that I kind of like is it shows Raymond Babbitt is kind of a nice guy. Mm -hmm. So much so that the hot Italian girlfriend, Mm. Susanna, I think kind of likes him more than she likes Charlie. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) Not heard. <laughs> Imagine dating and working with Charlie Babbitt. Oh my God. <laughs> no, thank you. Worst case scenario. I also think that, like, a lot of movies, a lot of like big movies, are American masculinity trying to find escape hatches. Yes. Mm. And some of the escape hatches are like, hunt down your proxy dad and shoot him to death in an airport so he <laughs> dies while holding your hand. That's heat. And a lot of stuff like that. And then this one is like, the escape hatch is autism. Yes. And you're like, mm. okay, well, keep imagining. Keep on dreaming. Yeah. As much as I hate that Dustin Hoffman's character has no agency in the movie. I do like that it shows that neurotypicals can be all of the things that we think of autistic people being. Unfeeling, cold, Mm. unable to form a relationship. Overwhelmed by casinos. Uh, Overwhelmed by casinos. (laughs) Like, like, can we just talk about the casino? I cannot think of a worse place to put an autistic person than a fucking casino. I know! (laughs) It can only be worse if he brought his stuff there and then touched all of it. Yes! (laughs) Not to mention, also, let's not forget that he had him in a completely new outfit in the casino. (laughs) I need to break into my clothes before I take them out in public. Like, this is sensory hell. Here's a question. Because this really connects with our conversation on You're Wrong About, where I feel like so much of Charlie's behavior, and I feel like this meshes with sort of parental culture we see across time, but I would imagine more in the 80s than now, of like, it is not my job to try and, you know, use my power as an adult to make demands so that the world does more to accommodate my child. It is my job to condition and perhaps bully my child so that they can tolerate being bullied and I and for that reason I have to like touch all their books in a way that I don't touch my other children's books yeah I mean I think it's kind of like that feeling like okay if you're if you have trouble with social interaction and like if you have trouble with like losing familiarity with stuff I'm gonna kidnap you and take you to I'm gonna take you across the country it's kind of like a really Fucked up exposure therapy. Yeah. And Las Vegas is a place that neurotypical people routinely come out of stammering and angry and sad and scared and dehydrated. Like Yeah, they, they wind up having a meltdown like us. <laughs> this is more of a question than a justification for Charlie in any way whatsoever. But I also wonder, like, if this movie is what exposed people to the idea that, like, autism was itself a thing. Like, and yeah. this movie's about... Charlie learning that there's a whole other classification, Mm. like a nuanced classification. And he's like, he can't, he thinks 
because everything appears to be okay, more or less. Like he thinks that every that like he's he can teach him, but like it takes him a while to realize that's not at all on the table. When Raymond is talking about his underwear in Kmart at I think it's 400 Street mm. in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. he says like I think this autism is a load of shit, and I know that you're in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right and. It kind of reminds me of the whole thing that Jim Sinclair says. The, the Jim Sinclair, who's one of the great early neurodiversity activists, they often said, uh, no, there isn't somebody in there. That's them. Right. And you have to take that as them. That is your brother. There's no other brother. Mm. Mm-hmm. Your brother is the same brother who made you $86,000 at Caesar's Palace is your same brother who needs to get his underwear at Kmart. Mm. Right. You know? You don't get one without the other. And I think that's where the movie goes wrong, is that this idea that you can condition mm. that your brother's not in there. And I, obviously when he later goes to the, when he goes to that clinician or I think somewhere in like Missouri or somewhere, the doctor says like, mm-hmm. shows that like, yeah, he has this unbelievable ability at math and he also doesn't you know know how much a candy bar costs and i should say i i have failed i always disappoint the neurotypicals when i point out that i got a c minus in math i barely pass math so you can't count cards i can't count cards i'm sorry neurotypicals don't take me to vegas I mean, do you do you want to see a pinball museum though yes let's also talk about this charlie won't fly with raymond but they are willing to go out on an amtrak train this was before we all understood about a lot about autism, but like, autistic people love trains. Why did you just take him on an Amtrak? He would have been happy that way. <laughs> and it seems like in the end of the movie, Raymond, yeah. Here's something I find genuinely pretty cute about this movie, that it's like, oh, what's that for plot? We have to take a classic American road trip and a classic American car down classic American <laughs> highways and byways. Okay. Through classic American small towns, each more picturesque than the last. Like, this also feels very fueled by boomer nostalgia, where it's like two brothers, dead dad, driving in their 1949 car. And someone proves their worth by earning... It's not like... The thing that's the turning point for Charlie is his brother earns him $82,000. Like, it's such an 80s movie that it's like, you are valuable. Even autistic (laughs) people can earn $82,000. This is America. I want to talk about something about this, because this is really important to me. Please. Because that casino scene, I feel like America is kind of having a casino scene moment with autistic people. Hmm. I feel like you're seeing, again, this is World Autism Day, and I'm sure a bunch of damn buildings, I live in Washington, D.C., are going to be lit up blue later tonight, and it's going to make me want to puke. The (laughs) the worst thing that I saw a while back, like this is like four years ago, I saw a hooter saying, come in and celebrate World Autism Day with me. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> but to, to my point is that you're seeing a lot of companies say, we're doing a hiring initiative. You know, you see ASAP has been doing it for a while. Goldman Sachs is doing it now. UBS, I went to Nashville, Tennessee to go to do a whole reporting on this. You're seeing there's these autism hiring initiatives. And like, I remember JP Morgan did one. And I remember they mentioned that like autistic people are like 
something like 120 times more productive than like their neurotypical counterparts. And it's almost like we're only okay with you being autistic if you can increase our bottom line. Mm. And, and so I feel like autistic people are going through in, in the American trajectory of autism, we're at the casino scene of the American political discourse for autism. <laughs> yeah, well. Because I feel like empowerment under capitalism in America is based on, like, are you useful? You know, yes. so, like, to become celebrated, you have to be useful to capitalism, which I think is also why... The idea of children is always going to be celebrated over the rights of children themselves because children don't have jobs. Yeah, like, I mean, I think the reason why you used to have a lot of children was to have, particularly when America was an agrarian economy, was, like, you have kids to work on the farm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is why people always freak out about things like the word woke is that it's the idea of children having agency in a way that that doesn't involve them working it's mm -hmm. like there's always this panic around it and i feel like also the other thing is like i talk about this a lot with a lot of other autistic people i would love to live in a world where autistic people don't have to count cards to be loved Mm. Yeah, I would love for us to not have to have a superpower. And in fact, there's, uh, I don't know if either of you've watched Bob's Burgers. I've only watched like a, an episode or two. Oh yeah, yeah, I love Bob's Burgers. The pilot of it, they make fun of the toothpick thing, but Tina Belcher, they throw down and then they hmm. ask how many are on the floor and then she gets the wrong number. They're like, wow, you're the worst autistic person ever. I would love to live in a world where I don't have to be able to name all the presidents front and back. I can if I want to, but I would love to live in a world where I don't have to. There's two values, right, that Raymond provides in this movie, and one is materialist value. He gets that money. And the other is he helps his brother to have feelings, yeah. Yeah. right? And that's not at all what's celebrated. <laughs> well, Alex, we just talked about Pretty Woman, and these movies are extremely similar. Yeah. They're about someone helping an angry, repressed guy to have feelings. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, when are sex workers and autistic people and, you know, people who movies tend not to concern themselves with in this way valuable or, like, worth story or worth seeing as people. And it's like, well, you know, they do help white guys to have feelings. We cannot discount that. <laughs> and basically they say that, like, he's unable to form a relationship with you and he's unable to tell the difference between here and Walbrook. And it's like, maybe he does, but you're not talking to him. Watching that scene, that interrogation scene at the end, I wanted to cry. Mm. Mm. Actually, Tom Cruise gives, I think, one of the best performances out there. He's like, he, he says, like, this mm. is bullshit because I could tell you anything. I could tell you nothing, and you'd never know the difference. I had a father I hardly knew, a mother I didn't know at all. I found out a few days ago I have a brother, and I want to be with him, and I'm supposed to give him up. And they say, you're he's capable, not capable of having a relationship. And it's like, they're specifically doing this to prove to Tom Cruise that he'll never love him. Right. And that is basically like what so many clinicians told so many, and probably still tell a lot of parents. I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard, the tragedy, tragic stories of, my son never hugged me. My kid's never gonna say, hmm. look me in the eye and tell, call me mommy. Maybe that's your problem, that that's how you express love. Mm -hmm. But in the end, as soon as the doctors and as soon as these, these Guantanamo Bay interrogators leave the room, yeah. he calls him my main man. 
Right, and they put their heads together. It's so nice. It's nice. It's lovely. Maybe you were putting him under sensory hell, and that's why he didn't know the difference, mm. you you sadistic fascists. Yeah, it's a, that's a great point because we see we see in the, the hotel room when he teaches yes. Raymond to dance, he goes in for the hug and there's a sensory overload and it doesn't work, and then he... What Charlie says is, I just wanted to give you a hug, meaning like, yes, this was how I was going to do this. And then we have this nice scene of tenderness between the two of them where he calls him my main man and he touches him as much as he can, like in a way that that is doable. Yes. And that's lovely because it's happening on his terms. You know what? I don't want to be hugged by Tom Cruise. I bet he would, I mean, probably not with a woman, but with another man, he would do that excessive back-slapping yeah. thing. Yeah, he looks like his body is, like, totally dense. I guess, like, I would much rather touch foreheads with him for a while. This is not that kooky of a choice. Some of my friends know that you have to earn a hug from me. Mm. Like, I have to be comfortable giving you a hug. By the way, I should say, when, if I, whenever I, I meet either of you, you both are allowed to give me a hug. But, uh, Hell yeah. But, <laughs> but it's like, I'm not going to get... You have to prove to me you're not going to hurt me if you give me a hug. Mm. Well, part of American society is based on everyone agreeing to pretend that they're friends with everybody else, even if they're strangers, and it's really quite odd. This is Washington, D.C., where people say, good to see you, even if they've only met you one time. Do they? Wow. Do we know what Raymond wants? Because, like, he doesn't not want anything. Like, he's not pure energy. Once again, we never see the movie through his perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think what Raymond wants, more than whether he's at Walbrook or whether he's with Charlie Babbitt, he wants to be able to watch the People's Court. He wants to be able to have his green jello. He wants to be able to eat his pepperoni pizza. He wants to be able to have his pancakes with the maple syrup coming first. He wants to be able to live the life that he wants to live. And... To your point, Sarah, actually, shit, Sarah, you brought up something that, that now I'm getting out the gears are turning in my head. Okay, good. Yeah, go for it. Let's do it. It's funny because does he like the people's court and does he like green jello and pepperoni pizza and pancakes because that's what he likes or was he conditioned to like it from years of being at Walbrook? Mm. So at what point does, and this is something because Cal Montgomery, who's an autistic advocate, an activist I know really well, and God bless him, He's told me something that stuck with me, which is we don't know what autism looks like. We know what autism with trauma looks like, with trauma looks like. Mm. And at what point is it okay for him to like those things or can he ever be conditioned to be, to know what he wants on his own? So that's a good question. Mm. And I, that, that goes to the question I've always wondered is at what point does the conditioning, is that conditioning you? And at what point is that conditioning what people have done to you? I don't know the answer to that. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Right. If you were in charge of idioms, what would you want to replace the, like, he's in there, there's someone in there idea? Oh, what I would want to say is, what do you want, I think, is the more important thing. <laughs> what can we do? What do you want from me? Because there's this misconception, and the movie reinforces it, that autistic people don't have empathy. Mm -hmm. We do have empathy, and I will say this from the mountaintops. We just don't know how to interpret how other people are feeling at the time. Mm. So, like, I think what I would want to say is, like, I know you want something. I know you're trying to communicate something. What are you trying to communicate? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to say? 
what Raymond is saying mm-hmm. about his underwear in Kmart is essentially, from what I get, is I'm scared. I'm not used to this. I don't know what this is. Right. Can we please go back to Kmart? Because that's what I know. Right. Rather than what I know you're in there, it's I know you want something. What do I need to do? What do I need to do for you? So Oliver Sacks may have even written this. I think he did. It was um, a piece, was I believe in Harper's, about yes. hearing parents of deaf children. And it had an anecdote about a dad who was like, you know, our daughter was born and we had this birth announcement and it was like, Harvard class of blah, 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 Miss America, something, something, something. Do you know this piece? I think so, yes. Then he's like, when we found out our daughter was deaf, it was like that child had died. She never did. Well, she She... never existed, so she was just a figment of your imagination. So it's your problem. And, like, why do you need your child to be this specific child? And why is it a tragedy if they're not? And if you can't tell the difference between, you know, what you ordered and didn't get, and, like, something that actually makes their life harder. Yeah. Like, I think those things can overlap, but they're not necessarily the same thing at all. You know, with with Tom Cruise, (laughs) he just is such an embodiment of, like, the character of, like, the angry dad who wants what he ordered, and him sort of, like, continuing to not get it is really... And and then sort of coming to get it a little bit. Like, he grows a little. He grows enough for you not to hate him at the end of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, I could grow more than that, maybe. I hope. I hope. <laughs> and I think maybe it was a movie, maybe for autistic parents, parents of autistic people, I should say, to say that, like, oh, God, well, at least I'm not doing what he's doing, mm. you know? At least I'm not that angry. Mm. Yeah, it's, and it just feels like it creates this adversarialness where you're determined to not empathize. I've been thinking lately, like, the concept of cognitive empathy. Yeah. Which is, like, that's where you know what someone else feels, right? I find it really interesting because I feel, I mean, I'm glad that there's like multiple terms for different kinds of empathy. I think we need even more of them. The way I feel about other people is that I know how people feel and I have a hard time knowing how they think they feel. Yeah. Because people feel a few basic emotions and you can kind of tell which one of them it is or I can. And I think that's a lot easier than being like their boundaries feel violated because they didn't want you to get drive through in their nice new car. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that because no one told me that specifically, but I sense that they're upset. What I find interesting about, like, Tom Cruise is the embodiment of the angry neurotypical dad, I guess, is that, like, he he doesn't know what Raymond feels, and that's not because he isn't feeling anything or, you know, the, the Kmart thing where he's like, everywhere has the same clothes. We don't have to go to Kmart. And it's like, okay, I feel like it is within your power to be like, maybe he wants to be at Kmart. Yeah. Maybe... It is the Kmart in-house label that he likes, and it is just the thing he has found that works. And when you have something that you have found that works, it's just nice to get it over and over until it gets discontinued. Yeah. It's not that you have this, like, magical gift of constantly working empathy. It's just that you are able to engineer reality to yourself where, like, you decide that you know how people feel and they lack the verbal abilities or the social standing or, or what have you to be like, no, yeah. that's incorrect and you're wrong and actually you don't know how I feel either. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's it's also like whose form of communication is more valid? Is Raymond's form of communication and saying, yeah, I don't know, any more valid than Charlie's? Shouting. Yeah, than shouting? 
or Dr. Bruner who pathologizes every I really I came to rewatching this I really came to hate Dr. Bruner so much mm. I think I actually hate him more than Charlie because Charlie Charlie's got his hang ups and you can kind of blame him for it Charlie's not a doctor so at least there's that <laughs> I think he's he talks about Raymond in much worse terms than Charlie does. I, I agree. I felt super uncomfortable with a lot of the ways that, that the doctor yeah. was talking about Raymond and, like, was insistent about how superior the experience was for Raymond and none of that considered anything about Raymond's agency. It was entirely about, you know, who would be a better captor, more or less. They, like, if we can go back to that interrogation scene, I think, and I, and I, and I think it's important, is that, like... You know, it says that, like, if he doesn't know the difference between Walbrook and being with Charlie Babbitt, then what makes you think that Walbrook is any better? (laughs) We know that institutions were hell for so many people. Are we really convinced we're playing with a stacked deck? You've been counting the cards the whole time, and you've counted them so that you have all the aces. Yeah. (sighs) They've stacked the deck so much. Who's to say, then, if... He doesn't know the difference that Charlie Babbitt's any better than Walbrook. Yeah, he knows the difference. We know he knows the difference. It's just silly. Of course he knows the difference, but, like, they're trying to say that he doesn't know the difference. Right. Mm -hmm. Sarah, I want to ask, this is yet another movie that I went into and was like, where are the data she's going to be? And Uh good news for me, the entire movie is that. You're like the dumbest, luckiest prospector in the world. Absolutely. You're just like, I don't think I'll find any gold out here. And then you sit down and you're like, well, this whole stump is a nugget. Praise Jesus. Everyone who listens to this show in one way or another, who listens to the show and like reports back is like, I didn't know there were so many dad issues in the these movies i'm like me either if you told me that rain man's primary like the primary thing that sets this up is the biggest fucking dad issue in the world i would mm-hmm. i would not have known so what is the drama dustin hoffman mentions that he was sent away january 21st 1965 but the thing of it was was that during the 1960s two years later bruno bettelheim would put out his book the Empty Fortress, hmm. where he said that basically the primary driver of autism is the parent wishing the autistic child wouldn't exist. Hmm. And I think that what's funny about it is that, I mean, the, the prototype is that the dad is seen as unloving, and he's kind of seen as what, what many people would understand was a refrigerator dad. Hmm. And then what happens is you realize, oh, he actually wasn't that bad. But it's funny how the dad is seen as this cold asshole who actually, you know, was taking time. But then, like, incidentally enough, during those days, the loving thing to do was to send the kid away. Mm-hmm. That was seen as the right thing to do, to take them away mm. from the from the parent. It's in- interesting how even though the refrigerator parent thing was debunked by the 70s, the father... Papa Babbitt is your prototypical refrigerator parent. Right. Yeah. So, Sarah, what is the family setup here, and and where is the tension? Okay, so this is kind of a nice parallel. When Tom Cruise brings his girlfriend home for his father's funeral, he tells her, you know, just why he hasn't talked to his dad in so long and hates him and about how, you know, his dad had this car that was, like, his treasured car, Mm -hmm. and he was like, that's his baby, that and his roses and i was like it's like the part in ferris bueller's day off where cameron he's like wailing on his dad's car and he's i forget the line exactly but he's like 
He's like, what do you care about? It's your car, you know? And he's, like, is beating up the car. Mm. Yeah. All these sad young men whose fathers loved their cars too much. The car's almost the mom in this case. Yeah. (laughs) And Charlie tells his girlfriend the story of how his dad never would let him take this car out. And so finally he took the initiative to take it when he decided he'd earned the right to drive it. And so his father reported it stolen and Charlie and all the boys he was driving around with got thrown in jail and their dads bailed them out after an hour and Charlie's dad left him in for two days. And his girlfriend is horrified and she's like, no wonder you're like this, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, like, I'm going to defend the dad because it's like... Yeah, as someone who's no longer 16, me too. (laughs) Because his dad is probably one of the few rich assholes with a fail son who didn't try to bail his fail son out. Mm. Oh, fair point. Yeah. There's almost a parallel and mirror image when... Charlie is showing Susanna the car and he's naming all the specs that as far as he knows. Mm -hmm. And then Raymond says, I think they say there's like 8,000 he's made. Mm -hmm. And then Raymond says that it was the first full year and then he says it was 8,053 or something like that. So like if you see that like maybe his brother might be a little ND, you know, might be ND or Mm. similar to that. Yeah, like there's a similarity where they both understand it, but it's like almost because Raymond understands it or respects it because he doesn't covet it. His dad lets him drive it. He says, I'm an excellent driver. Mm. It's specifically Mm. because he doesn't covet it that he doesn't, that his dad lets him take the car out. Mm -hmm. I also wonder how much of the, the elder Babbitt, the dad, became icy to charlie because he resented or was upset with his decision to send raymond away yeah that that probably was because again going back to i hate to bang on the drum that was seen as the right thing to do Mm. Mm. even if it hurt even if it hurt parents were literally told to put away photos of Mm. their kids well and i'm curious what you think about that because it feels like if the character of Raymond, like, in the context of this movie, which presumably is at least trying to be accurate to it at an extent, is considered high-functioning, yeah. at what level of autism or, like, where on the spectrum do you have to be to even be noticed or be, like, determined to be autistic in, like, the 60s, 70s, 80s? That's the funny thing because a lot of people would probably in the 1960s probably wouldn't think Raymond was autistic. Mm. Mm. They just think he's a, a Wisconsin bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 wait, wait, what does, what does that mean? Oh, just that like someone who lives in like the cabin down the road and he like yeah. tinkers all day and he's like, you talk to him at the market and you're like, that was weird. And you're like, that's just his way. You know, like Boo Radley. I wonder how many Wisconsin bachelors were autistic. Half. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, you just gave the most ND response. (laughs) I love it. God bless you, Sarah. It's funny because you're right. The thing that ultimately sends Raymond away is them thinking that he nearly killed his little brother when he was actually trying to save his little brother. Mm. That was the scene that got me feeling, you know, some some goo trying to escape my face. Can you describe what the the scene is, Sarah? 
It's a really intense scene. It's like right at the center of the movie. It's the hinge of the movie. Yeah. They're in the bathroom. Raymond is brushing his teeth, and Charlie says something about it. He says, like, Rain Man, funny teeth, right? Like, that's something Charlie said when he was a toddler. Funny Rain Man, man. yeah. Funny Rain Man, funny teeth. And Charlie, it's just like, it all just, like, happens. He just sees it all at once, and he's like, you're Rain Man. Because what? Because in the scene where he was talking to his girlfriend, where he's back home, and she's like, well, God, no wonder... And also, like, her problem with him is that he was he withdraws from her. He won't talk to her. Yeah. And she's like, I know you're in there, basically, in the grand tradition of all girlfriends in 80s movies. Yes. I was watching on Amazon, and they have all the little facts. Huh? Yeah. One of the notes was, like, a test audience gave was, I wish the little guy would have snapped out of it. <gasps> and I was like, are they talking about Tom Cruise? <laughs> <laughs> Like, snapping out of being Tom Cruise? Because, like, yeah, so do a lot of people. You saw a lot of people. <laughs> Nicole Kidman probably feels that way. <laughs> yeah, and so she's like, how did you cope? Like, how did, you know, with, like, you were all alone with your withdrawn dad? And he says it kind of to himself, right? He's like, Rain Man would come and sing to me. Oh. Yeah. And he thought this was an imaginary friend that he had. And then, like, in this... <sighs> moment he realizes he does remember Raymond yeah in the same instant he happens to do something which triggers another massive round of memories for both of them which is to turn on the hot water in the tub yeah and he screams like burn baby burn, hot baby burn baby or something like that yeah hot water burn baby and then he like pieces together why was Raymond sent away yeah basically I remember watching that and thinking, oh, my God, like, he can't do, like, he was sent away because he couldn't speak for himself. Mm. And it was a misunderstanding. And it's so devastating. Mm -hmm. Right. It's one of the most devastating things I've seen. You know? mm. Because you realize, and this is the beginning of those kind of three dads in the movie. That's the beginning of the end of his life with dad one, mm -hmm. you know, Papa Babbitt. Mm. And the beginning of his life in dad two, which is the institution. Raymond Babbitt is going through these three dads. Mm. Right. And it is tragic because you realize dad number one didn't know what to do with him. Dad number two, the state or, you know, Walbrook, sets criminally low expectations for him. Mm. And then dad three, Raymond, comes around to it later but just basically sees him as a burden and a nuisance. Mm. Right. Just kind of, you know, in some ways, he's a lot like dad number one. And then the two moms are uh, are Susanna and the car. So. <laughs> <laughs> My mother, the car. Yeah. Sarah, what was your take on just Charlie's evolution of dad drama intention? This is a well-made movie. This is an idea that was kind of new and exciting for people, I think, in mainstream, ignorant America yeah. at the time, neurotypical America, which is like, wow. There's some value to autistic people, which is like, yeah. okay, well, if we had to establish that with so much fanfare, then I guess we ha had to. All right. But it was just, it was so big. And I find that so interesting. And like Tom Cruise was a ratings king. It's well made. It's well acted generally. Although I guess there's like a big actually question mark around the character of Raymond for that. Cause I don't know. I don't feel like I can judge that really, but Tom Cruise is great. He's given like his Magnolia best. Yeah. Well, and this is also a time when like, like a big movie in the eighties would be like one person doing a thing you'd never seen before. 
Yeah. Yeah, like Mr. Mom, Michael Keaton cares for a child. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so if you're like Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman, you say, in a car together, pack the kids in. We're going. Friend for the whole family, et cetera. Yeah. But I, I was watching it and I was like, I feel like part of what drove the success of this movie was the fact that it's kind of allegorically and probably to its detriment about the experience of becoming a parent. Yeah. Yeah. The same way that, like, the baby Groot character does that in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It's almost seen as, like, this is a thing that Tom Cruise... By the end of the movie, it's almost seen as, like, this is a responsibility. Raymond isn't his brother. He's a responsibility he has to take care of. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the $3 million is the $3 million is because that has to pay for his institutional care. So, like, he's trying to see him as a brother, but it's the clinicians. And I almost see the clinicians as a stand-in for Daryl Treffer and Bernard Rimland, mm. who were the actual clinicians who told Barry Morrow and Barry Levinson, you can't make this, this movie about, like, two brothers living together in Los Angeles. Mm. I see Dr. Bruner, as I believe his name, as the stand-in for Bernard Rimland, uh, who incidentally was one of the people who helped perpetuate the anti-vaccine myth. Uh, <laughs> what? Twist! Yeah, so Bernard Rimland was one of the big boosters of Andrew Wakefield in the United States. I believe he testified at the same congressional hearing that Andrew Wakefield testified in 2000. He might have. I might need to go back and check. Oh, my God. Bernard Rimland, to his credit, is the guy who got rid of the idea of unloving parents in his book, I believe Infantile Autism is the name of the book, but it's also the guy who perpetuated these really bad ideas in Rain Man mm. and really terrible ideas with vaccines. So thanks, Bernie. Yeah. Mm. You came and you gave and you also took. Yeah. You give it and you take. <laughs> so it kind of just leaves off with being like, Raymond has to go back to the institution. Like, that's what has to happen. So it seems like on one hand, you know, this is a movie that's like, hey, autism is a thing. And here's a little bit about what it looks like, you know, accurately and inaccurately. And then it ends with concluding being like the normal place for him to be is still in an institution. Like, yeah, that seems like a problem. <laughs> it is a problem because I think what it said is that it said that this is where they belong, that they don't right. belong in the community. Mm. that this is where they're best able to thrive. Mm. There's almost this trivialization of the things that Raymond Babbitt likes. Mm. The People's Court, uh, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, where compared to, like, Tom Cruise's thing of, like, kind of being on a selling gray market Lamborghinis, that's a legitimate interest. Yeah, totally. You don't make money watching The People's Court, all right? You just learn about justice in America. Yeah, uh, or the lack thereof, yeah. <laughs> I hear it a lot, I see it a lot of times on, like, parent blogs. Parents are like, why does my kid still like Sesame Street at their 16? It's like, Sesame Street isn't the worst thing for your kid to like. Right. If your kid is 16 years old and watching Sesame Street, at least they're enjoying themselves. At least it's something that they can yeah. do to calm themselves down. Like, What if there was a hotline where those people had to be connected with people whose children are Nazis now because of YouTube? Yes. Also, when I was a senior in high school, YouTube had just been invented and it was finally possible to watch Sesame Street sketches that I remembered. Oh, yeah. And that included, like, Philip Glass animations and stuff. Like, I, like <laughs> yeah. everyone's media consumption is a waste of time, according to most other people. I feel like that's fairly universal. I think the thing about it is that everybody does the same stuff mm. that autistic people do. Yeah. You know, like... 
I futz around with my keys. That's stimming. Raymond, he would rock back. He rocks back and forth. That's his way of stimming, and he recites who's on first by Abbott Costello. That's his stim to talk. Conversely, Tom Cruise, when he's out in the desert and yells, son of a bitch, that's a form of stimming. Yeah. But that's seen as uh-huh. an acceptable form of stimming. He's communicating. He's using speech to communicate to an interlocutor. The things that autistic people do to live in this world, to to navigate this world, are pathologized. Right. It's seen as a reason why he can't interact with his brother, that his brother likes, knows Judge Wadner on the same level as he knows Charlie Babbitt. Mm. I'm sure some people have like 100% productive hobbies, but, you know, God bless them. They're very rare. And, yeah, I think just like people spend so much time getting shamed for the things that they enjoy that are like fundamentally harmless. I mean, yeah, I was thinking this when I was watching Rain Man where like, Charlie, during one scene, is giving Raymond a hard time for reciting who's on first. He doesn't understand why he's doing it either. He's like, it's not, it's a joke. Like, you don't understand it. He thinks he's reciting it again and again because he doesn't get it. And it's like, he gets it. Yeah. You don't get it. And you don't have to give someone grief about reciting who's on first. And there's also, I was thinking this, where he was, like, going to his date with Iris, right? And he has his watchman, his portable TV, which was, like tippy-top technology at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and Charlie is like, do you have to be on TV, like, watching TV the whole time? And he's like, you know, yeah, probably. And I'm like, wow. Imagine walking around really sort of your attention focused not on your surroundings but a small handheld device. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it. <laughs> God bless. I would never. <laughs> I'm interested in just kind of what if we approach stuff from this perspective of like, am I giving this person grief about what they're doing to self-soothe or just because they like it because it is actually bothersome to me or an impediment to them or a nuisance or just because I have decided that their ways of being in the world are intrinsically worrying and suspect and I want to bother them about it a lot yeah and touch all their books i want to be very very clear because anytime i talk about autism and people making it okay for autistic people to be who they are in the world Mm -hmm. i get a lot of shit for this autism is a disability Mm -hmm. i don't want to take away from that but the things that we like and the things that we need to do are ways of us navigating those really difficult parts or our impairment part of our disability Mm. We should welcome and find a way for them to use those things to cope and th- because they help them deal with the really, with the slings and arrows of being disabled in the world. Mm. Right. The other thing, and like, you know, it's funny because like Alex, you tweeted this morning about how Rain Man is a kidnap movie about a kidnapping. Yes. <laughs> and then I had that quote tweet where I said, you know, in a world where voluntary commitment is a thing, uh, call Tom Cruise John Brown. I'm going to slightly, (laughs) slightly defend. So Tom Cruise did that for really screwed up reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He did it because he wanted to get money. But in a way, where there's that moment where he says, he came much further than with me in six days than you did in 20 years. That should be the lesson, is that Mm, you can grow and you can thrive. Yes, you're still going to have impediments and challenges. And once again, I don't want to, I keep on saying this, autism is a disability. Yes, he's still going to have a difficult time. He's still going to need to have his uh, his green jello. But he can live a good life on his own. 
So yes, Tom Cruise was screwed up for doing that, but in another way, he gave Raymond something that his father and Walbrook and Dr. Bruner took away from him. Right. Which was a taste of the real world. And mm. so, once again, on this Good Friday, what... Tom Cruise intended for evil, God intended for good. <laughs> or Xenu in his case. Didn't Tom Cruise almost become a priest? He did. So that all makes sense. He got to learn that Kmart sucks. You know, that's a, that was a very yeah. important important thing for him. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a great point that, yeah, the, the reasons the reasons were bad. But, uh, you know, yeah. he got these six glorious days and that he should have had much, mm. much more of in different circumstances. Yes. Mm. Also, it's like Tom Cruise, it's like, it's kind of a false binary where it's like, okay, you can be institutionalized. Yeah, or, or you can live with Tom Cruise. You can be taken care of by Tom Cruise. He's 26 <laughs> and he has a lot of anger and he seems to spend a lot of time on grooming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> seems like kind of a hothead. Yeah. Yeah. The anger and the violence of straight white men in America has never really been pathologized. And I'm interested in what would happen if we did that. Yeah. You mean if we were to treat straight white men the way we treat disabled people, Sarah? Right. If we were like, why? is tom cruise doing that like let, let's talk about this self-soothing behavior he's engaging in it's very disruptive <laughs> are you really saying that white that straight white men can't have issues the same way that disabled men can or are you really trying to, to, to upset the apple cart that way sarah i mean apples are the sweetest when they've been bruised a little we learned that from beverly cleary <laughs> yeah uh god bless rest in peace we are we are mourning her her, her loss yeah Aww. I'm so glad that you spoke to that, Sarah, that if your choice is to go back to an institution or to live with just like a seething, like just <laughs> ready to kill Tom Cruise, I could understand how you wouldn't be ready to give a straight answer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think that that was probably by design that like they're going to make independence seem as awful as possible. Yeah. Or... Well, I should say interdependence. Yeah. They make Walbrook look great in the movie. Mm. But even there are flickers and glimmers throughout that, like, it's not really a happy place. Or when you, when you first see the expose of it, this was, like, what, 20 years after Willowbrook? Mm. You know, mm. and, like, all the institutions. Like, those are fresh in people's minds, I think. Mm. It's funny how they make it, like, Walbrook is good. It's he's safe here. He's protected here. Whereas they're going to make it so that independence means you live with a cold-hearted, seething, raging capitalist. Mm. <laughs> and it makes independence seem like hell. Mm. I, I feel like it had to be by design by all these people. Right, like freedom means you live with a guy who's always yelling into a headset. Yeah. I also want to see a movie rather than Oliver Sacks like doing his clinical work. I want to see like young Oliver Sacks just fucking. Like yes. I want to see young Oliver Sacks like riding his motorcycle, hooking up with dudes, pumping iron. When he was a bodybuilder, <laughs> the Hell's Angel, yeah, <laughs> on PCP. <laughs> I would love that. Like, and the thing that is, I should say, is that like I'm really great friends with Steve Silverman. Yeah, and it's 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 you know he taught he talked to me a lot about like how Oliver had to go back in the closet after, you know, because his, his mother was Jewish and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And, like, that's tragic in another way. Yeah. There's a great documentary about young Oliver Sacks, I mean, about Oliver Sacks that came out last year. Mm. <gasps> Is there really? Yeah, there's a documentary that came out last year about Oliver Sacks you need to see. That's so good to know. Oh, Alex, you're so happy. <laughs> I get to see that movie. Yeah, like him hanging out in Venice, like doing crank, hanging out with dudes. I want to see that, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I never, well, I did take psychedelic 
psychedelics when I was a teenager, but then I had bad trips and I never considered taking them again until I heard Oliver Sacks talking about Oliver Sacks and psychedelics. And I was like, yeah. all right, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm ready for us to reunite in person and to do psychedelics in honor of Oliver Sacks. Me too. And then lift some weights and do something gay. <laughs> I, think it, I think it should also be stated that like, Oliver Sacks, as a gay Jewish man, has some of the best empathy for autistic people. Oh, uh, yeah. Because he was gay and he was Jewish. Mm. And he knows what that's like. Like, it's funny how we lived in a world where homosexuality was in the DSM, but autism wasn't. Mm -hmm. mm. And, uh, you know, that's something to think about on World Autism Day and when talking about a movie like Rain Man. Wow. Wow, that's fantastic. So... We know who the dad is in Rain Man. It's Senior Babbitt. Mm. Yeah. Who do we propose as the daddy? I really like that doctor they go to in that very picturesque little small town in Missouri. I do too. Yes. Who's like, if he's getting on your nerves, you just take a break. I love it's like that. good advice, Dr. Feel Good, laid back <laughs> Missouri guy. I like him too. I'm gonna go rogue here. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the daddy in this is Susanna. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Oh yeah. We have we have a lot of great lady daddies. There's a lot of talk about an autism and neurodiversity of meeting somewhere where they're at. Mm. Yeah. Susanna is totally okay with meeting Raymond where he's at. She's not offended when Vern says, when he says, are you taking any prescription medication? Mm -hmm. uh, Vern says that's his way of saying he likes you. Mm -hmm. She doesn't get offended. She realizes, oh, that means he likes me. And she's also the one person who tells Charlie Babbitt, get off it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's her. I'm going to say it's her because she's the daddy to both of them. Mm. When we see him sneak uh, Raymond out, I was so nervous that they were going to make her not realize what was going on. Like they were going to like make her yeah. stupid. And then I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm glad that she picked up on it immediately because it's so obvious that this is a bad thing that he's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My pitch for the daddy, this is the roguest I've ever been on this show with a pitch mm. for the daddy. Okay. My pitch for the daddy is Oliver Sacks, who had nothing to do with mm. this movie. He was not in this movie. But based on what Eric, that's it. I love Oliver Sacks, period. But like based on what you just said yeah. about the understanding and the connection and the intersection on World autism day that's fucking great and i'm excited that you made that connection for us mm. i have a lot of love and respect for oliver Sacks. i i began reading about autism and studying about autism really as an adult around around 2015 which is when he passed away mm. and I, I felt a lot of sadness when he when he did because i would have loved mm -hmm. to have gotten to know him and i think that we live that a lot of autistic people who live in the world today uh owe him a debt of gratitude mm. Mm. so I, will, I i would think that oliver Sacks, yeah absolutely was the daddy in this one <laughs> yeah. he was just out in the world being the daddy somewhere he's autistic people's uh gay jewish daddy <laughs> he and Susanna. who i would like some some fan art of that if anyone is yeah. you know bored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Wire Dads. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much to Eric Michael Garcia for being on the show. It was so, so wonderful to have Eric here. Eric's book, We're Not Broken, comes out later this year. You can find Eric on Twitter. That's where, that's where we do all of our hanging out, over on Twitter. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show and for directing the music and for, you know, making it sound great all around. Carolyn Kendrick uh, has an EP out called Tear Things Apart. You can find her at carolynkendrick.com. 
This week, Carolyn recorded I Saw Her Standing There by The Beatles, who I'm sure you've heard of. And uh, she had help. She had accompaniment by her brother, Casey Kendrick. Thank you so much, Casey, for being a part of this show this week. Oh, and beats are provided by Fresh Lesh. Thank you so much, Lesh. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, You can find me on TikTok, which is a place where I am sometimes. And we have a website, all of those things. You know, we're just happy that you're a part of the Wire Dads community. We're so happy that you're here. Join us next week for our conversation with Maggie Rose about Pretty Woman. (laughs) So happy we had Maggie. We had a great time. All right, that's enough from me. That's enough from us. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk with you the next time. Enjoy yourselves out there. We'll talk soon.